Thank you. That was wonderful. This morning, before I start, I would, uh, I would just like to welcome back, because I don't think we've done that, all the students that have been abroad. We have students coming in from all over the world, and uh, maybe, uh, maybe you just want to stand for a minute, and we can just say, welcome back. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Well, of course, I'm a little biased because my daughter was one of those on the Europe semester, but it is wonderful to have you back. And we have a very full house this morning. So um, we're excited you're here. And why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Father, as we come before you this morning, the back doors open. And as we sit silently, Father, you come in, you walk down this center aisle, and you take your place right here. We are so grateful, Father, that you are with us. We can't imagine how wonderful it is. Father, will you fill this place with your glory now? We pray in Jesus' name. And for his sake, amen. <clears throat> well, often students talk to me about how much they struggle with their devotional time, their time with God, and they find it kind of boring sometimes and uh, kind of dry, and they're not sure what to do with that because they know that if they dispense with it, um, they'll feel kind of guilty because, after all, Christians are supposed to have their devotional time every morning. But if they keep on with it, they're going to get kind of depressed, these ones say, because it's kind of lifeless. There's not much that's happening there. And so these students, and maybe you find yourself among them, find themselves between a rock and a hard place. And I think that uh, when we trudge along with a suffocating regimen that is yielding no joy, no comfort, no direction, it's not a good thing. It's really hard. Well, I don't know where you are this morning, but I'd like to share with you something that my 40 years as a Christian, I know it's hard to believe that long, but nevertheless, 40 years as a Christian, um, have taught me, and mostly, I would have to say, from some of my book mentors, and I bet some of you have those as well, people that you just, you'll read everything that they write, because it just speaks right to your heart. And um, some of my book mentors guided me in the direction of a practice that I hope will be helpful to you this morning if you are feeling in that dry place, if you are feeling in that place where um, you just are not quite connecting with God. You're not experiencing that joy of relationship that you want to have. Now, I want to make two things clear. First, there are many things that you can do to deepen your communication with God and your listening skills. This is only one. But the interesting thing is, this is one that you already have, that you already know, that you may have shelved, mm, I'm going to guess around junior high school time. Um, because that's about the time that we begin to turn from 
what we think is um, childish to, uh, to what supposedly is more a more mature way of acting. Well, I'm talking about the use of imagination. The use of imagination. Now stay with me here for a minute and try to let yourself live in the images that I will sort of pass on to you as we go along here. Um, and think about how you have used your imagination in the past. When you were once a child, and, and maybe even why you allowed, for, for many of us, allowed our imagination to kind of drift away so that we could become, in our thinking, more mature. Well, growing up, I had many opportunities to develop my imagination. I've shared with you a little bit that my father was a writer, and he, um, he read to us quite frequently, and he believed that with those books and those um, stories that he told us, it would uh, get the juices of our imagination flowing. And not only flowing, but that it might lead on to further creativity on our parts. And uh, so he read to us quite often. And those stories danced around and played in my head. And, and I had plenty of opportunity when I was little to be able to use my imagination. Uh, because there was time to do it. And uh, I remember we had an old sycamore tree in the front yard, and that sycamore tree became all things to me. It became a fort. It became a place to hang my uh, archery target. It became uh, a place to hide when I didn't want to see anyone, although that was kind of hard because there weren't that many leaves on the tree. But nevertheless, it was my place to be and to use my imagination. And sometimes... I was a, uh, a princess, and sometimes I was a football player. Figure that one out. <laughs> but it was my place to use my imagination. And then I remember I had bookshelves in my bedroom, and uh, they kind of supported the dressers uh, beneath. And on the bookshelves, I used to play with what I called my little guys. Now, maybe you've seen some of these in... Uh, in plastic bags. Mostly they sell them as little soldiers now, but mine were little Disney characters. And, uh, and I would create these stories for endless hours because in my childhood, I was given that time to be able to do that kind of thing after school and on the weekends. Another place that I developed my imagination, every summer our family would go and vacation. Some of you know the place on Balboa Island in Newport Beach. And, uh, and my, my dad would get me a, a face mask. I remember my brother always used to tease me because it really didn't look all that great. But face mask or little goggles or that kind of thing. And I would go under the water and spend endless hours looking at things. And in, in, in that, I would develop my imagination. I had my little spear and I never got anything, but it was always fun hanging around underneath the water. And I got a really burned back from that as well. Well, another thing was my father worked for Disney, and uh, I will uh, talk to you more about that at another time. But uh, working for Disney uh, brought in all kinds of stories uh, using imagination into our household, and that was a very important part of my growing up. And my father had something that he called the little elves, which we twisted a little bit in our family and, and uh, went a little different direction with, but the little elves were these characters that would show up when I was young. Actually, I think it went until about junior high, 
When I was young, uh, they would come and visit, and they would leave little gifts or little surprises around our house. Well, I thought that was awesome. And uh, and, and, in all of these things, my imagination was being developed. Well, I had space, as I said, to develop that imagination. And I wonder, as as I look at you now, and as you think back on your childhood, did you have space to develop that imagination. Did you have forts? Did you have uh, hiding places? I remember we had a place called the secret hideout, which just cracks me up now, and I think about it because it was right below my parents' bedroom window, not that secret. And it was between their bedroom window and, and the neighbor's fence, and maybe there was about eight feet there. And in that space, we would uh, raise all of our little creatures. We had lizards and hamsters and mice, and, but we called it the secret hideout. Did you have places like that? in your childhood that were very special, where you just went to think and went to get away. Well, we kind of worked at developing that imagination in our children as well. Um, Beyond the tooth fairy, and some of you probably had the tooth fairy, we had, we still have, excuse me, Santa Claus. And um, and with that, uh, to, to help further the image for my children after they were in bed on Christmas Eve, my, uh, my husband would sometimes, don't tell them this, but sometimes go out and walk on the roof uh, just, to, you know, just so they knew. And they heard that sound. They heard the bells. <laughs> it gets a little scary as the years go along as well. <laughs> our, my little elves then turned into the gnomes. And the gnomes visit our house at Christmas time. And there's a basket on the tree still. And they come and they deposit little gifts into that basket. Well, they uh, also had imaginary animals, and on and on and on it went. And I realized that we were probably doing a pretty good job of, uh, of working on developing imagination with our children when I heard a, uh, a screaming younger daughter uh, say, Jamie won't let me go to Disneyland. And I, what is this about, you know? And she said, Jamie said there's Disneyland underneath the house, and only she can go there. And I can't, you know, and you'd have to hear Kelly scream to fully appreciate the drama in this. But they, they use their imaginations. And I, I worry about kids today because they don't have enough time to use their imaginations because they're shuttled from one activity to the next with their sports and their many lessons, and then they're placed in front of a myriad of screens to be entertained, and there's not enough time to just dream and stare at the stars and stare at the ocean. Well, when Jesus tells us to come to him as little children, we need to think about what little children are like. Well, some of the things might be obnoxious to us at times, but let's think. Honesty, Um, perhaps being dependent, being trusting. Um, Humble is another word that comes to mind. But what about the fact that children use their imaginations? Maybe it isn't something, after all, that we outgrow when Jesus says, come to me as a little child. Well, I believe there's a link between the use of imagination and the cultivation of personal spirituality. Well, now, that, that... makes people nervous sometimes. Imagination and spirituality? Hmm. Sounds a little mystical to me. Sounds a little new-agey and without uh, substance. And further, 
we dump a lot of negatives on that word imagination. We say, oh, that's all just in your imagination. Or get real, which means uh, come back to reality. Well, imagination is not only fantasy. Imagination can be composing the real. It can be composing the real. And we'll bring some scripture into that in just a moment. We can thank the Enlightenment, the, the period that began around 1750, for some of this thinking. The Enlightenment taught us that human reason could explain everything, which seriously limited our grasp of faith and the apprehension of wonder. It said, read, learn, understand better. These things lead to better informed Christians with much, a much better grasp of Christian beliefs, but the emphasis on reason has been at the expense of our imaginations and emotions. Now, I want to I bring up a caution here, too, that it is vitally important to be thrown into utter dependence on God when we apply imagination to spirituality because we are part of the fall and everything that we do um, can be affected by the evil one. We can manipulate imagination. We can take it a lot of places. And what we want to do here, and what we're talking about here, is using our imagination to draw closer to God through his words and through our prayers. Richard Foster writes in his classic Celebration of Discipline, we can descend with the mind into the heart most easily through imagination. Perhaps some rare individuals experience God through abstract contemplation alone, but most of us need to be more deeply rooted in the senses. We must not despise this simpler, more humble root into God's presence. Jesus himself taught in this manner, making constant appeal to the imagination. And many of the devotional masters likewise encourage us in this way. The imagination helps to anchor our thoughts and center our attention. Okay, good. Well, then how does this work? How does this work? As we engage our imagination with the reading of Scripture, it becomes meditation. And this is kind of what I want you to think about and we'll repeat a couple times. As I allow my emotions to be touched by the power of the Holy Spirit, by lingering in the passage, it begets or prompts prayer. This happens when I project myself into the narrative or the story, the image or the theme. Well, the narrative might be a gospel story, something that uh, perhaps Jesus is doing, one of the stories that you're really familiar with but maybe haven't climbed into. The image might be something like what we'll talk about here in a minute, a rock. Or the theme might be forgiveness. And as we climb into that and, and begin to picture it, um, in our, both relating it to our lives and imagining what that would be like or look like or feel like, then it becomes meditation and moves us into prayer. Well, Psalm 62, do we have Psalm 62 back there? There we are. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. I'm reading a little bit different version here, but you get the general drift. We have... 
three different images of God in this very short passage. And if you go all the way through Psalm 62, you'll see that they're mentioned again and again. Salvation, fortress, I'm doing well here, and my rock. Okay. For God alone is my rock. What does that that come uh, as a picture for you? Uh, How how does that come as a picture? God is my rock. Well, I think of, um, for example, when we drive north on Highway 101, and I guess actually it's Highway 1 that it's off of, we pass Morro Bay. And in Morro Bay, there is this gigantic rock. I'm sure many of you have seen it. I mean, it is impressive. It is, uh, it's kind of overwhelming. It's just so huge, and it's sitting there in the water. And I look at this thing, and, and, and I begin to get that image of God is my rock. But then I attach my experience to a passage like this. And I was thinking of a time when um, I was working at summer camp, and I was a counselor, and I decided that I wanted to be a lifeguard, and they were going to have lifeguard training, and there was a lake there with a rock in the middle, and, uh, and I was very anxious to, uh, to learn how to be a lifeguard, and so I, uh, I went out and uh, tried this out, and it was a kind of a scary thing because uh, we had to go and we had to save someone, and there were several different people to save. Well, the person that I had to save turned out to be the one that was 6'4 and had a history for pulling people underwater and holding them there. And I was terrified uh, because this was the person that I was going to have to prove I could do this with to get my lifeguard credential. I was going to have to go out and save him. So we all went out to the middle of the lake and we stood on this rock and, uh, and he's out there flailing around and my heart was pounding and I jumped off the rock and I swam toward him and I got a little bit too close and he grabbed me around the neck and he yanked me under and he held me there until I could barely breathe and finally I passed out. (laughs) Didn't get my lifeguard credential that day. (laughs) Well, I remember going back to my tent, weeping, thinking I'm not doing this, but I had another chance. I thought, maybe I'll get the other person the next time, but still, I was terrified. Went back out, stood on the rock, in this big rock in the middle of the lake, and I just, I thought, as I stood there, this is where I want to stay, right here. This firm foundation, this thing that holds me up. And please, God, don't make me move from this place. Well, I got the same guy. He's out there flailing around. My adrenaline started pumping, and I fired off the rock. <laughs> I just, I remember this so vividly. Going, and I, I, got, I got a little distance from him. I shot down to the bottom of the water, shot back up behind him, grabbed him around the neck. <laughs> I mean, I practically killed the guy, I thought, and I dragged him back to the rock. And, uh, and I got my credential. It was really cool. <laughs> I was terrified. God is my rock. I will never be shaken. I need something firm under my feet right now, something to hold me up. Everything else feels loose, sinking, but I have this rock. Well, what about fortress? What does a fortress look like? Um, 
my children kind of teased me about this one because our family was traveling in Europe. And those of you that have just returned and those of you that have been there before know all too well that uh, in many of the towns there are these structures up on a hill above the city that look down, and I didn't know what they were called. But, um, but when we went to Salzburg, I glanced up and I said, what is that fortress? Well, it was called the fortress, duh. You know, anyway, I didn't know that. And I said, what is that fortress? So now whenever we see one, you know, my kids are always, what is that fortress? You know, kind of thing. They love to tease me and give me a hard time. But the fortress, you have to picture this. When we talk about God being our fortress, and maybe you've had a fort and you know what that feels like. You, you get in there. No one can touch you. You're, you can kind of watch the world. They can't see you. And you're safe. Well, these fortresses are kind of up on a hill, and they look down over the city, and they protect all of those in the shadow of the fortress. And God is our fortress as well. And that was an image that I used as I, as I looked at this passage. Well, salvation. God is my salvation. He is my deliverer. And... Um, I bring you this story, and uh, actually there are several people in here who were students of mine in junior high, at least I think they're here. Um, but a few years ago, I taught at a Christian junior high school, and I had 7th and 8th grades, and I, I had a very difficult 8th grade class that year. They didn't want to be taught. Um, they, they, I was teaching Bible, and they just thought it was kind of a joke. You know, it's kind of like, you know, they lean back in their chair and they're just like, teach me, kind of thing. Well, I tried to do everything I could think of. I would show, you know, videos, we would play games, we would do dramas, everything that I could to help them understand the scripture that we were studying. And they're still like, yeah, great. Well, one day, these two guys came up to me and uh, <clears throat> they said, so what's your point? Well, I don't know about you, but when you've poured your heart and soul into something, and, and these guys weren't bad students or, you know, they weren't tearing down the building or anything, but they just came up and they were just, I mean, their whole body language was just like, so what's your point? You know, I hate this class. Well, for a teacher, that's devastating. And, I mean, it was just, it was totally devastating for me, and I... Uh, I had a little bit of a break between my classes, and I went out to my car, and I was just destroyed. And I thought, there is no way that I can go back in there and teach my seventh grade class, who, by the way, my seventh grade class are just, teach me, teach me, teach me, I love this, I love the Bible, I love all the stories. You know, they loved it. But, but my, my spirit was just dashed. I just, I had no desire to go back in there, and I thought, how am I going to do this? And I just... Pray, Lord, you know, get me in there, get me through the lesson, get me home, and, and I'll do it. So I went back in, and I don't know how it was, but went through the lesson that day and heaved a sigh of relief when it was over. And then um, I went home, and, you know, I just thought, that was so hard, and I just don't, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. Well, a couple weeks passed, and I... Um, 
I saw a girl from my seventh grade class in the hall, and she was kind of down the hall, and she was talking with a friend, but she kept looking over at me like, I want to say something to her, but I'm not sure. I want to say something to her. And I, so I thought I'd better go bring her out, and I, I went over to her, and I said, uh, well, what, what's up? You know, you look, look kind of anxious here. You want to talk to me? And she said, well, I do, but I feel stupid. And I said, well, don't feel stupid. Let's, let's talk. What is it? What's up? And she said, well, I, I, I have this thing I wanted to tell you, and I've wanted to tell you for two weeks, but I couldn't tell you because I didn't think you'd believe me, and, and I just wanted to check what I'd seen, so I, I went and I talked to another mom who knows about these things, and she said, yeah, that's what I've seen too before, and just you better go tell her. So, so I'm going to tell you, and if you think I'm stupid, I don't know, I don't know what to say. Well, this girl, you have to know is not one given to stories, um, was, was a, a, just a, a neat student and, um, and just not a storyteller, just not a, not a storyteller, I guess I'd say. And, and so um, she began to say, you know about two weeks ago when you taught that lesson on such and such? And I immediately remembered because it was the lesson that I had to teach after I'd had that horrible class and I gave up. She said, well, you know, I was taking notes, and, um, and it was the weirdest thing. She goes, when I looked up, you had angels standing all around you. She said, they were about seven feet tall, and there were two over here by the window, and there was one right next to you, and you could kind of see through them, and, 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 and the one that was standing next to you just kind of cast this light and she goes, I can't understand it, but that's what I saw. And I, I just had to talk to this other mom who'd seen angels before, but, but that's what I saw. Well, God is my salvation. God is the one who delivers me. I don't question her for a minute. I mean, even now, as I tell you the story, I get goosebumps because I saw the faithfulness of God standing next to me. God is my salvation. I will never be shaken. God, those who seek to harm me are coming at me and there's no escape. They'll hurt me. They'll destroy my self-esteem. They'll ruin my integrity. They'll dash my honor. They'll bruise my emotions irreparably. God alone is my deliverer, my hope. He loves me just as I am and he will rescue me. Well, this is just a sampling of how you can take an image in Scripture, combine it with your experience, use your imagination, and make Scripture come alive. You can take a narrative, as we said, a story, a story uh, like the one of, um, uh, where, that we talked about a little bit earlier, where Jesus calls over a child and says, see this little child, remember the story? The disciples were standing over here kind of quibbling about who was going to be the greatest. You know, who's your favorite kind of thing? And you can almost see Jesus over here leaning against the building in the shade of the afternoon and watching this and going, not again. And uh, you, can, you can see the donkeys walking by. You can see the shuffling on the street and the dust. You can almost... You can just climb your senses right into that passage because you're there. And then Jesus is leaning against this building and he sees a little child over here. 
And that child maybe is bouncing his ball against the wall, you know, of some old lady's house. <laughs> maybe he's kind of scruffy. And, and uh, you see that this, this older lady lean out the window. Okay, I'm putting all this in here, but it helps me climb into the story. And she, you know, stop that. Stop bouncing your ball on my wall. And Jesus goes, come over here. Calls the child over to him. And he has the child stand next to him. And he puts his arm around him. And then he goes to the disciples, come over here. Stop your crazy quibbling. Come over here. See this child? This child will inherit the kingdom of God. Come to God as children like this child. That's what I mean when I talk about using all that we have, our emotions, our imagination, and pulling ourselves and our senses and pulling ourselves into that story. 2 Corinthians 4.18 reads, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. Well, we're talking about heavenly things there, but I wonder if instead of drawing up a blank when we pray, a blank screen, if we draw up the person of Jesus sitting next to us, if when we come into a place like this, we don't see a gymnasium, but we come in perhaps prayerfully and we see the angels that are surrounding this place, and I can tell you that they are, because we have prayed for God's spirit to be here and for God's protection to be in this place. And his army's here. And what if you don't draw up a blank screen when you're praying for that one in the hospital, but you see Jesus standing next to that person, your hand on Jesus, Jesus' hand on the one that you're praying for and praying for the healing of that person, or for the marriage where Jesus is standing in between those two people and holding their hands. Do you see it? These are the images that we can have as we use our imagination. Brennan Manning tells this story of an old man dying of cancer, and this story has made a big impression on me and has caused me to, um, to, to be much more visual in my, uh, in my prayer life. The man's daughter um, had asked the local priest to come and pray with her father. When the priest arrived, he found the man lying in bed with his head propped up on two pillows and an empty chair beside him, beside his bed. The priest assumed the old fellow had been informed of his visit. I guess you were expecting me, he said. No. Who are you? I'm the new associate at your parish, the priest replied. When I saw the empty chair, I figured you knew I was going to show up. Oh, yeah, the chair, said the bedridden man. Would you mind closing the door? Puzzled, the priest shut the door. I've never told anyone this, not even my daughter, said the man. But all of my life, I have never known how to pray. At Sunday Mass, I used to hear the pastor talk about prayer, but it always went right over my head. I abandoned any attempt at prayer, the old man continued, until one day, about four years ago, my best friend said to me, Joe, prayer is just a simple matter 
of having a conversation with Jesus. Here's what I suggest. Sit down on a chair, place an empty chair in front of you, and in faith, see Jesus on the chair. It's not spooky because he promised, I'll be with you always. Then just speak to him and listen in the same way you're doing with me right now. So, Father, I tried it. And I've liked it so much that I do it a couple hours every day. I'm careful, though. If my daughter saw me talking to an empty chair, she'd either have a nervous breakdown or send me off to the funny farm. The priest was deeply moved by the story and encouraged the old guy to continue on the journey. Then he prayed with him, anointed him with oil, and returned to the rectory. Two nights later, the daughter called to tell the priest that her daddy had died that afternoon. Did he seem to die in peace, he asked. Yes, when I left the house around 2 o'clock, he called me over to his bedside, told me one of his corny jokes, kissed me on the cheek, and then I left. When I got back from the store an hour later, I found him dead. But there was something strange, Father. There was something really weird. In fact, beyond weird, just strange, I don't know. Apparently, just before Daddy died, he leaned over and rested his head on a chair beside the bed. Imagination. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain, certain of what we do not see. Let's pray. Father, will you take this group of students and all who are here and teach us once again how to use our imaginations, Father. As we come to you, Father, may we see your face, your smiling face, your face that loves us and approves of us and wants everything that is best for us. And Father, even when we sin, we know you're there and we see you there. And we know, Father, that you desire a relationship with us. You desire to forgive us and to set us free. Lord Jesus, open our eyes. We want to see you. In your name we pray these things. Amen. You're dismissed.